Good, good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you this morning, even though we're not um, able to be gathering together in person. Um, we are able to do this together. Um, it's a disappointment that we can't be all here in the same place, but I want to remind you that um, the same God who is present here with the couple of us now is the same God who is present with you wherever you are. And we are unified and we are brought together by the fact that God is with all of us no matter where we are. I'm excited this morning, uh, it's been mentioned a couple times in the service already, to be able to begin this new sermon series that we are calling Cheap Truths, Common Lies That We Believe. The, uh, the father of philosophy, this guy named Socrates, at the end of his life was put on trial for uh, corrupting the youth and impiety. And reportedly during his trial, he defended his, um, his love for philosophy by saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think that same thing is true when applied to faith. The unexamined faith is not worth believing. And I think if we're honest, there's a lot of Christianity in America today that isn't an examined faith. It doesn't have deep roots. Instead, I think a lot of our Christianity can sometimes be uh, rooted in spiritual highs, in shallow statements, in assumed identities, or even in well-worn Christian cliches. And that's what we're going to dive into in this series. These well-worn Christian cliches that have wormed their way into our churches and our thoughts and our faith. And we want to talk about them and expose them for what they really are. So we're beginning this series with the, the cliche or the lie that God has a plan for your life. Now, you might be thinking, wait, what? Is that a lie? God doesn't have a plan for my life? Well, let me be clear here. Uh, I think God does have a plan for your life, but the problem with that statement is that it has been used and reused so many times that it has become a cliche that has a lot of unspoken baggage attached to it, and that unspoken baggage and those intentions behind it are, off, are often misleading. So the words themselves, I think, are probably true, but um, there's a lot of unintended consequences that have come with this popular saying. So let's dive into this idea, God has a plan for your life together. The Bible text that we're going to look at today is Jeremiah chapter 29. Um, I want to begin by putting this passage into context. As we'll see across this series, many of these cliches have some truth to them, but they often rely on a Bible passage that has been taken out of context. So let's put this verse into context. The book of Jeremiah was written by the prophet Jeremiah, who was a prophet during the 6th century BC, so during the 500s BC. During that time, the sort of global politics of that era was that the Assyrian Empire uh, fell and a new empire came to take control over the Middle East, the Babylonian Empire. 
in the year 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire came in and they conquered Israel. They came to Jerusalem and they destroyed Jerusalem and most notably, they destroyed the temple. After they did that, they took a bunch of Israelites off into exile. They took them from Israel to Babylon, uh, which is today would be in modern day Iraq, about 50 miles south of Baghdad. So they took them from Jerusalem, basically to Baghdad, into exile. The prophet Jeremiah was in Israel during that time, but there were a small group of Israelites who, before Babylon came, they fled to Egypt and they took Jeremiah with him. So when these exiles were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, Jeremiah was in Egypt. In chapter 29 of the book of Jeremiah, we get a letter that Jeremiah writes to these exiles in Egypt. He's writing to encourage them in their difficult situation. So uh, let's read together Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning with verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So this verse, uh, this passage, and especially the verse kind of in the middle, Jeremiah 29:11, has become a sort of poster child verse for this idea God has a plan for your life. This verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, I think has almost become a meme in popular Christianity which, with how commonly it has been used. But I think this verse and this cliche have a couple of misunderstandings that are often connected to them that we should expose. The first misunderstanding is that we might think it is easy, but in reality, we're talking about exile. We might think it's easy, but in reality, this is exile. I think often when people say to one another, God has a plan for you, 
in many situations, that is offered as a word of consolation. It's offered as a word of comfort. It's offered to someone who is struggling or suffering or sick, someone who has gone through some hardship or lost a loved one. And the, the sort of unspoken assumption between this, of this phrase is that if things are hard now, they're going to get easy. The unspoken assumption is that if God has a plan, then he will take your difficulty and make it simple. He will take your hardship and make it easy. I think a really extreme example of this line of thought is found in the prosperity gospel. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, the prosperity gospel is this, uh, this false teaching, a, a stream of thought that says, if you believe in Jesus and if you give money to the church, then God will make you rich. Uh, one time I was in Houston visiting a really large mega church there that is known for the prosperity gospel. It's a church that meets in an old sports stadium. And um, when you leave the church, you're going down these escalators, escalators in the church, huge. Uh, you're going down these escalators and above the escalators on the wall in big letters, it has Jeremiah 29:11 there. It has this verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declared the Lord, plans to prosper you. And in the context of that church, it's very clear that as you leave the church, they want to remind you that Jesus wants to make you rich and make your life easy. I don't think there's a, a lot of people here at Hope who would hold to the prosperity gospel. But I think sometimes it's easy for this idea to, to creep into our minds that, that God's plan for us means that life should be easy and life should be simple. But in this text in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is writing to people who are in exile. He is writing to people who have gone through the traumatic situation of being taken from their homes and brought to a new place. They are among foreigners. They have gone through an incredible difficulty. And if you look at the text really closely, it's actually very interesting. In verse 4, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile. In the last verse, the Lord again says, I'll bring you back from the place from which I carried you into exile. The text says that the difficulty of exile was something that God brought them into. It won't be easy. This text is talking about exile. The second misunderstanding that we need to expose is that we might think that it is specific, but really it is communal. We might think that it's specific, but in reality it's communal. I saw this, uh, I, I saw this a lot when I was in high school, this idea that God has a plan for you. And people took it in my high school youth group in a really, really specific way. And it had this terrible unintended consequence of making it really difficult for people to make decisions. Uh, this happened in my high school youth group when people were choosing colleges. They had this idea that God has a plan for my life about what college I am going to go to. So I need to make sure 
that I choose the right college because if I don't choose the right college, then I won't be in God's plan for my life. I think we often think about God's plan for our lives in these sorts of terms, that God has this specific plan for us that we need to follow. God wants us to go to this college. God wants us to major in this thing. God wants us to move to this city. God wants us to um, just hit this microphone here. Um, God wants us to marry this person. God wants us to have this many kids. And we need to like make sure that we're doing the specific exact thing that God had planned for us. And if we choose the wrong decision, then all of a sudden we're not in God's plan. And that can lead to a, a paralyzing uh, life where you can't make decisions because you're afraid of not being in God's plan. But if you look at this passage in Jeremiah 29, the plan that God has for these people is not very specific. Jeremiah doesn't write to these exiles in Babylon and say, hey, Steve, uh, you need to marry Sally. Right? He doesn't write and say, hey, Joe, you need to move from this borough of Babylon to this borough of Babylon. It is addressed to a community. And it's, it's saying that this is God's purpose for this community. And this is the way God wants to move within this community. I think often it would be much better for us to stop thinking about God's plan for me and to start thinking about God's plan for the community. This is something that um, in some ways my wife and I are wrestling with right now. Uh, some of you might know that um, I'm finishing my PhD. I have a year and a half left. And once I finish it, my wife and I are planning to move overseas long term to be missionaries. Uh, we don't know where we're going to go yet. Right now we have it narrowed down to uh, five countries. We're um, looking at Colombia and Brazil and South Africa and Ethiopia and Egypt. Uh, we don't know where we're going to go, uh, but we do know that um, I feel a calling to global theological education and my wife as a physical therapist wants to work with children who have disabilities. It would be incredibly easy for us to be freaked out about the thought of choosing a place that we're going to live for who knows how many years and to, be, to just worry constantly that if we choose the wrong city or if we choose the wrong country, then we are going to be outside of God's will. But the way we're trying to, to retrain our thinking and the way that we're, we're working to think about it better is to realize that God has given us a calling, and no matter where we go, we can still fulfill God's calling. And no matter which country we choose, in the, whatever country we end up choosing, we can still be within God's will for us. Because God's will is for God's church to fulfill God's purposes. The third misunderstanding that often comes up with this idea that God has a plan for your life or with Jeremiah 29, 11 is this. We think it's about greatness, but in reality, all of this stuff is very normal. The idea that God has a plan for my life, I think, is often 
spoken as code. And as a code, that means God is going to do incredible things through me. I think often it's a way of exalting ourselves in God's story and making us the center of it. Often when we say God has a plan for me, we are assuming that we're going to become these hugely influential people who are going to do these incredible and inspiring things. And really all it is is us um, taking our desire to be great or to be famous or to be the best and, and twisting it into Christian language. What I find so fascinating about this passage is if you look at what Jeremiah tell the, tells these exiles to do, all of it is incredibly normal. It's very usual stuff. In verse 5, Jeremiah says to them, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have children, let your kids get married, pray. Like, none of this is inspiring revolutionary stuff. What he tells the people to do is very normal. He tells them to be faithful where they are. The goal here isn't to be great. The goal here is to be faithful. Um, I had a mentor in undergrad, this college professor, who told me this story one time that's always stuck with me, about a group of students who came to him one time and said, uh, Professor, we want to be used by God. Uh, my, my professor looked at them and was like, oh, that's fantastic news. I'm so glad to hear that. You know, we live in Chicago and it's the middle of winter. Uh, I have this old woman who lives a couple doors down from me who can't shovel her walk or her driveway. Can you go shovel her walker and her driveway? And the students looked at my professor and they were like, no, 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 professor, you don't understand. We want to be used by God. My professor looked at them and was like, oh, I, I get it. You don't want to be used by God. You want to be famous for Jesus. And I think it's so, it's stuck with me so much because it's so easy to, to twist those things together and to confuse being used by God with being famous for Jesus and to have our desire for greatness be twisted in this Christian way. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, if we define greatness rightly, I think God does have greatness for us. If greatness is defined as being faithful where you're at, if greatness is defined as being, um, as being someone who lives with excellence or someone who's a fantastic father or spouse or mother, um, if greatness is defined as loving every person you come across, then yes, God wants greatness for us. But if we define greatness in the, in the way the world defines it as being the best, or if we define greatness as, you know, preaching to stadiums kind of stuff, uh, then I think we're misunderstanding it. Um, I've come to this opinion I don't think I've shared this in a sermon before. Forgive me if I haven't. I want to be clear that this is an opinion of mine. Uh, I've come to this opinion that greatness is overrated. Greatness is just totally overrated. Um, we live in a world, I think, that tells us to be great, but I, I think it's not worth it. Um, I'm at this school where I have professors who are 
truly great in their field. Uh, professors who are publishing books every year, professors who um, have written stuff that has changed the discipline that they, that they write in, professors who every single person who studies this discipline knows their name and has read their stuff, and when I look at their lives, it looks awful. Like, the sacrifices that they have to make in terms of their family, in terms of their social life, in terms of their hobbies, to be truly great, I just, I just, don't, think it's, I just don't think it's worth it. And I think this world would be a better place if fewer of us were seeking greatness and more of us were seeking goodness and were seeking faithfulness. So there's these misunderstandings that come with this idea that God has a plan for your life where we might think it's easy, but really this is exile. We might think it's specific, but really it's communal. We might think it's about greatness, but really it's about normality. I want to suggest for us a better way forward. I think we should replace God has a plan for my life with God has a purpose for his people. I'm going to repeat that. We should replace God has a plan for my life with God has a purpose for his people. I think this will help solve some of these problems because then we will realize that even if we're in the difficult situations of exiles, God still has a purpose for us. God has a purpose for us makes us realize that this is not about the individual, but it's about the communal. And God has a purpose for us is something that we can fulfill no matter how great or normal we are. What is the purpose that God has for his people? I think based on this passage, we could summarize it with two things. And the first is something that I've mentioned a couple times already in this sermon, and that is the idea of faithfulness. I think that's what Jeremiah tells these people when he tells them to build houses, to settle down, to plant gardens, to eat from them, to marry, to have children. He is describing a life of humble faithfulness. God's purpose for us is that we would live lives of faithfulness no matter where we are. So if you're faced with some decision about where to move or what job to take or what school to go to, you can choose as long as you are faithful in whatever situation you find yourself. The second thing that is part of God's purpose for his people is that we would be seeking after God. Uh, in this passage, in verse 12, it says, Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. God is saying to these people in exile, even though you're not at your home and even though you're not in your temple, you can seek me and you can find me. God's purpose for his people is that in whatever situation they would find themselves in, whatever location, whatever difficulty or ease, that we would seek after God with all of our hearts and with faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, we have been given this incredible gift. 
that even though we were totally undeserving, God himself came to earth and God took our faults and our guilt and our sin upon him. And God, out of nothing we have done, brought us to himself. And now we can know God. And now we can be in relationship with God. And now we can seek after him. And that is his purpose for us. That in every situation we would be faithful and we would seek him. Hope, Jersey City. God has a purpose for his people. Let's live into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful. Your goodness to us is overwhelming. Your love for us is never ending. Your mercies are new every single morning. You are the God who has promised to always be with us, to never leave us, and to never forsake us. Even though we are absent from one another, you are present with each and every one of us. And God, we thank you that you have a purpose for us, that you have called us into your kingdom, that you have brought us into your people, that you have made us your own and that you will work your will out through us, God. Lord, I pray that you will make us a people who are aligned with your purposes. I pray that you will make us a people who are characterized by faithfulness in every situation and by a devotion to seeking after you. God, we thank you that your plan for us is faithfulness and seeking you and that we can be in your plan in any location or any situation. God, we praise you because you are the only one who is truly great and that you draw us into yourself. This morning, Lord, we devote ourselves to you entirely. We thank you for the gift of being in relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name.